Well, if you have a, a copy of God's Word, please uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. So we started a study in the Gospel of Mark back, back in the fall, and we are flying through this book. Um, so we're in chapter 3 already. Um, and we took a little break to go through our vision and values, and so we're back at it. And it's, it's probably one of the more um, difficult texts, um, not only in, in, in Mark's gospel, but I would say in the entirety of Scripture, um, because we're dealing with one particular section that gets a lot of, t- a lot of, a lot of uh, a thinking and worry and anxiety over the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So that might be something that's familiar to your ears. Um, but needless to say, there's a lot to be gained from this passage, and I'm excited to be able to, to, to preach from this text today. So Mark chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 22 through 30. And if you don't have a Mark journal yet, there are some on the welcome table. Those are free. You can take one of those with you. Um, you can get up right now and go get one if you want to. I think they're helpful for taking notes. I know a lot of people use that, so grab one of those on your way out or even now. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me Pray for us. Father, we thank you again for your word. Uh, we're, we're so thankful that we have uh, just an abundance of copies of your Bible before us today. So God, I pray that you would help us not to neglect the truth that you have to show us from your word today. God, that you would open our ears and that you would open our minds to understand these wonderful and glorious and even hard truths from your word today. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So sometimes we've been answering the question, just, to, just for those of you who haven't been with us, we've been answering the question from Mark's gospel, who is Jesus? So that's a question that we're trying to keep before us throughout the entirety of the study. Who is Jesus? And so sometimes understanding who someone is, it, it's important for us or it's helpful for us to understand who someone is not when we're trying to answer that question. So just think about it when you meet someone new, how many presuppositions that you come with towards that particular person, just simply based on the way that they look 
or maybe the way that, you, that you're kind of initially interacting with them, or maybe you know just a small part about their background or about their family life. And so you immediately begin to have all of these thoughts about this particular person. And typically, I would say 99% of the time, you are completely wrong in judging that particular person. So when you begin to understand who a person is not, it helps you kind of eliminate those options that may cloud your judgment about them. So when I was thinking about this, I was reminded of that scene from C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, from the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you're familiar with the story, you'll know this particular part of the story, but there's, there's four, uh, verse four siblings, and so when the two oldest uh, siblings worried about their younger sister, Lucy, has been telling tales of this magical land called Narnia. But not only is she telling these tales of this magical land called Narnia, she's acting as if she's actually gone there. That she's actually met the creatures of this land. And she has all of these fantastic stories to tell. So finally, the two oldest siblings are worried about her they finally go to the owner of the house that they are staying in. And the owner of this house is this this kindly old professor. And after patiently hearing their story, this is the way in which he responds. He says, logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. So he helps them to establish who Lucy is not first. She's not a liar. She hasn't given you really any evidence her entire life that she is a liar. And we definitely can look at her and tell that she is, she is within her right mind. She's not crazy. She is not mad. So the only logical explanation is that she's telling the truth. Well, we see this same exercise happening in our text this morning. Except it's not concerned siblings who come along inquiring about who Jesus is. It's actually his enemies who do this. And in this interaction, we get a much clearer picture of who Jesus is by recognizing who he is not. And then in the midst of all that, we have an opportunity to be stirred in our own souls as well as Jesus presents the spiritual condition of his opponents. So I want to, I've broken the passage up into three parts. It's in your worship guide there if you want to follow along and take notes. The first part would be the lie. The second would be the logic. And then the third is the truth. The logic, or the lie, the logic, and the truth. And I couldn't think of a synonym that started with L for truth, so I apologize for that. Um, I looked hard. So first is the lie. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out 
the demons. Now, Mark tells us in verse 22 that the scribes came down from Jerusalem. They came down from Jerusalem. The scribes were, 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 uh, were, were teachers of the law. They were in the same category as, as the Pharisees. So these were, these were men who understood God's word. So these scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they didn't just come down for a casual kind of curious visit. They came down with a specific purpose in mind. They were actually sent from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem for a specific task, and that was to investigate the works of Jesus. They had been hearing about this man who is is calling himself the Son of God, who is casting out demons in the name of God, who who is forgiving sins in the name of God, and they've heard about him, and they're coming to investigate. And the two conclusions that they end up with are this, are these. One, Jesus is possessed. He's possessed. And two, is that in his possession, Jesus is using the power of Satan to cast out demons. So essentially what they have just done is they have put Jesus into the category of a sorcerer or, or in the category of a magician, which during that time was, was a category in which one could be stoned. So they're putting Jesus in this particular category. So first by saying Jesus was possessed, this was the easiest way forward for them in this matter. Because they could not deny that Jesus had power. They knew that he had power. They knew that what he was doing was real, that what he was doing was true. People had witnessed it with their very own eyes. They could speak to those eyewitnesses. They could could talk to the people who had been healed, and they could get a very clear testimony. So they knew that Jesus' power was real. But they could not affirm where this power actually came from. So remember, if you, if you remember chapter 3, verse 6, and at the end of, of that interaction in Mark's gospel, um, when the man with the withered hand and Jesus heals him, and the Pharisees are upset by that, and it says, uh, Mark tells us that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, both who were enemies of Jesus, about how they were to destroy him. And what better way to begin this process than to discredit his power? And now, this wasn't any old demon they were saying he was possessed by either. It wasn't wasn't like the demon possessions that we've already encountered in Mark's gospel. They were saying he was possessed by Beelzebul which is, we've heard, we've heard that name before, probably if you've read the Old Testament, Beelzebub, it's the same, it's the same uh, word there, but it literally means the master of the house. And they're speaking specifically about Satan himself, the master of the house, the king of this earth, or the king of this world. Now, this is a heavy accusation. This is not an accusation that is meant to be taken, taken lightly. They're not just some passing remarks. They're just saying, you know, he's possessed. 
he's possessed by a demon. This was an official ruling from the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish, the central Jewish place of power. So it's the only, the only the illustration that I can give you to kind of give you a picture of what that would look like is if you just think about the Vatican and the Pope. This, this is kind of that, that kind of power that is coming down from the very top. They're saying he is possessed by Satan himself. Now, and it's a view that, that doesn't just kind of like wash over everybody. It's a view that many Jews held on to and believed during this time, even after the resurrection. They still believed that Jesus was a worker of the devil. And it swayed many to have a false idea of who Jesus was. Now, this, this is very easily happening in our day, too. There, there, are, there are tons of lies floating around in our culture about who Jesus is. Many people look at Jesus just like they look at people they don't know. They look at Jesus with their own presuppositions, which all of that, all that does is just fog their vision of the real Jesus of the Bible. Most of the time, if you're talking to your non-Christian friends and they're telling you they don't believe in Jesus, it is typically the Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible that they don't believe in, which you can happily answer, I don't believe in that Jesus either. Because they enter into this world with these presuppositions about who Jesus is. I was listening to an interview or watching an interview with the comedian Ricky Gervais who hosted the, the Golden Globes this, this year. And he was telling the story. If you don't know, he's, he's an outspoken atheist. But he was telling the story about how he came to be an atheist. And what it boiled down to was that Jesus wasn't, wasn't ever real to him. And he tells a story about how when he was a boy that, that Jesus to him was like a superhero. That was who Jesus was. He was a superhero. I, I loved reading the stories in the Bible because it, it painted this picture of a man who was a superhero. But when the right doubt came along... He quickly abandoned superhero Jesus, the unreal Jesus, for atheism. So a lie had been planted in his mind that was easily extinguishable. It could be put out just like that. Enough to do away with with any form of Jesus altogether. doesn't matter what kind of Jesus is presented to him now, he is not real which is the exact aim of the scribes in this pronouncement. They are seeking to implant their misunderstanding of Jesus and his work that would easily extinguish him in the minds of his followers. They want to destroy him. But thankfully, Jesus enters in with some simple logic concerning their diagnosis about his identity in verses 23 through 27. Look there with me. And Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in response uh, to this accusation, Jesus uses two short, very short parables to highlight the falsehoods of their claims. And in the first parable that starts in verse 23, he begins with a question, a very simple question. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can he possibly do that? Why would he do that? So notice that Jesus doesn't use the name uh, Beelzebul here as the scribes do. Because Jesus wants to bring the ensuing controversy that is, that is taking place here. He wants to bring this controversy within the scope of his mission. And if you remember, his mission is a direct confrontation with Satan. So Mark is now pointing us back to the pattern that he's already highlighted in his gospel so far. And in, and in pointing back, he's also pointing us back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And if you're familiar with that verse, uh, you, you, and you should know it because I quote it often, it is when God makes the promise that Satan's head will be crushed, that Satan himself will be defeated. And so Mark has been hinting at this throughout his gospel. So he's pointing us back to this reality, to this truth uh, that, that Jesus has done or is doing what Adam could not. That Jesus is the one who is defeating Satan. And that process has begun. If you look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness. And then you skip ahead in in chapter 1 to verses 21 through 28. Jesus is casting out demons and healing the sick. And these aren't just good deeds that Jesus is involved in. This is Jesus making a proclamation that he is crushing the head of Satan. That he is winning. That he is calling back God's creation from the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus is telling them, my ministry is in direct opposition to the work of Satan. How can Satan cast out Satan then? If you call me Satan, how can Satan cast out himself? How can he do that? So in verses 24 through 27, he simply runs through a series of logical scenarios. I mean, he breaks it down for them. It doesn't get any simpler than this. So in scenario A, in verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it will fall, Jesus says. So if a king goes to battle with his own kingdom, it's a kingdom that's not going to last. It will crumble. And then you have scenario B in verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, it will fall, 
We see this in divorce. When a husband and wife are divided, the family, the house, will fall. It cannot stand. So if scenario A is true and scenario B is true, then scenario C in verse 26 must be true as well because it follows the exact same logic. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell them in, very, in a very simple fashion. If Satan, verse 26, if Satan is divided against himself, he cannot stand. He will come to an end. So this is what Jesus is saying to his opponents, but more importantly, to the broader audience that is listening to this particular message. So he's saying the the, the logical conclusion then, if their accusations are correct, if the scribes' accusations were correct that Jesus is possessed and that Jesus is using the power of Satan to cast out demons, if their logical conclusion is correct, then Satan has become divided in his allegiance, meaning Satan is against himself, which means eventually Satan will become powerless, or he is currently powerless, which everyone knows who is hearing Jesus make this proclamation, make this logical defense. Everyone present knows, even the Jews know, that this is that that is not true, that Satan has lost no power thus far, that Satan is fully involved in making a havoc of creation, that he is fully involved in dragging men and women and children into darkness. So why? Why is this clearly not the case? Well, verse 27, Jesus explains This is the second parable that Jesus uses, and it's even shorter than the first. And we'll get into this a little bit more, uh, especially as we move through Mark's gospel, because there's there's much longer parables that we will encounter. Even we'll encounter one in just a couple of weeks here. Um, But whenever you are trying to understand parables, so these stories that Jesus tells us in the scriptures that we come across often, one of the first things that you need to identify in parables is stock imagery. So some examples of stock imagery that you see often in parables are, uh, so if you see shepherd or king, that typically uh, means it's talking about God. Or if you see a word like vineyard, that is not typically talking about, about grapes and wine specifically, but it's talking about Israel. It's talking about God's people. Or if you see the word harvest, in a parable that's typically talking about judgment. Well, that's no different here in verse 27. Jesus is referring to the strong man here in verse 27. And when he refers to the strong man here, he's not referring to himself. He's referring to Satan. If you're familiar with the, the hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our Guard, God, that, that entire hymn is about Satan. It's about Satan coming up against God and his people. If you didn't know that already. And this is what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about the strong man, 
Satan is strong. And Satan's strength is evidenced in the world through the enslavement of men and women, through sin, through demon possession, through disease, and through death. So Jesus' point in verses 24 through 26, is that the only way in which Satan's power can be restrained is not in him being divided against himself. That is an outrageous and illogical claim that will never happen, Jesus says. That will never happen. The only way that he can be restrained is if a stronger man comes along and binds him. That's the only way it will happen. Only one who is stronger can enter Satan's realm, can enter his house, can tie him up useless and plunder his goods. And it's in the temptation in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where the strong man, Satan, met the stronger man, Jesus. Jesus is the one not casting out demons by the power of Satan, but Jesus is the one who's plundering Satan's house, rescuing men and women from his enslavement. So how do we know that Jesus is the stronger man? Well, it's because Jesus is the one who has the Holy Spirit. So if you remember chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, and in the midst of his baptism, the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit came upon Jesus like a dove. Jesus was receiving the Holy Spirit at his baptism. So Jesus has the Spirit. The work that Jesus is doing on earth is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's how we know he's the stronger man. It's as the bearer of the Spirit that Jesus stands as the champion of God in the battle of Satan. And it's on this point here where Jesus pivots into the truth of verses 28 through 30, because what's currently happening is the scribes are ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit that's happening in Jesus, to the work of Satan and his demons. And this has devastating consequences, as we are about to see. Look at verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. Now for some of you, Verses 29 and 30 either are currently terrifying you or they have terrified you in the past. 
So I know that. I know that that's probably something that you may have struggled with. You may have been sitting here this entire sermon after that was announced that this is what was going to be preached and been terrified and just haven't, you haven't heard any of the first part of the sermon, which you need to hear the first part of the sermon to understand this particular part of the sermon. But maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're asking yourself the question, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Have I done that? Have I committed sins so great and so numerously that I have been, that I've committed a sin that has damned me forever in the eyes of God? Have I done that? It's something you may be asking yourself. Now, I want to encourage you that if you are asking yourself that question, you probably have not committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That you can acknowledge your own sin and recognize that you're a sinner should tell you that you have not done that. And I'll explain that further here in just a moment. But even if you hear those words and and say, well, I, I still think I may have done that, I want you to listen closely to how Jesus begins these next three verses because he does this on purpose. He could have very easily left out uh, verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. Or it could also be read, Amen, I say to you. Which simply means when we say amen that we are affirming or confirming a truth that is spoken. And so Jesus is beginning his sentence with amen. He's saying, what I'm about to say to you is entirely true. So this is what I want you to do right now. I don't want you to grovel in this, but I do. I want you to, I want you to, to think about the sins that you have committed this week. Think about those sins that you've committed. Maybe just the sins you've committed today. And listen again to Jesus' words. Because they're for you. That's why they're in here. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. All sins. And whatever blasphemies they utter, they will be forgiven. So I think we see an example of this in verse 21. I didn't read that for us, but in verse 21, Jesus' own family members are convinced that he is out of his mind. They say it out loud, he is out of his mind. (laughs) He's crazy. We think he may be losing it. In a way, they're committing a blasphemy. They're committing uh, a sin by communicating something about Jesus that isn't true of him. But they haven't gone so far as to deny the Spirit's work. Yes, we think he may be out of his mind, but something unusual is happening. And we can't explain it except to say, maybe he's crazy. I also, this is also why I had us read 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 12 through 17, because you have the Apostle Paul here confessing this very thing to Timothy and to the church that Timothy is pastoring. Though, I, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, 
an insolent opponent of God. Or of Jesus, I should say. But I received mercy, Paul says. So all sins of which men and women sincerely repent will be forgiven. That's a promise. Whatever blasphemies they speak will be forgiven. Except for one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if this is a connection point, but I always think about this when I think about um, these particular things in the scriptures where we camp a lot on, on one particular idea or, or one particular um, truth that we see in scripture and say, well, it's there and it's, it's singular and we want to make a big deal out of it. So we, we have that with uh, in the beginning in the garden where we have the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God has placed in the garden and tells his creation, you can have any other tree in the garden except this one. This one tree. You have every other tree except this one, and it's the tree that they gravitate towards. Well, I think in similar fashion, you have all of these sins that we have committed, all of these blasphemies that we spoke against God, that he says, these are all forgiven. Even even things like murder and, and rape, and, and those things that we don't like to speak of are forgiven. Except this one. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So this must be serious. So I just want to say that this, what this doesn't mean is that there is a defect in Christ's atoning work. Nor does it mean that God is incapable of forgiving sin. So let me just explain to you a little bit about what blasphemy against the Spirit is. Because blasphemy against the Spirit is not so much a specific sin like lust or envy or even murder. Blasphemy against the Spirit is a state of sin. It is something that someone is living in. It it consumes them. It overwhelms them. It covers them up. They live in a state of blasphemy. It's who they are. It's what defines them. So you could say it's, that it's a gradual moving away from the truth of who Jesus is. A gradual moving away from the gospel. So as one commentator put it, he said, there is a willful, determined opposition to God and His Spirit. You are against God. You are against his spirit in every way. So it's a sin. It's a state that, see, that so sears the heart that when you, you could clearly see a supernatural work of God, but instead you attribute it to anything but God. And it's a state that makes repentance impossible. You can't even find repentance anywhere. So, which is clearly what the scribes are doing here in our text. And this is what Jesus is telling them, that you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. 
There is no forgiveness for you. None. Now, a couple of ways I would say that we see this in, um, in our culture, and, and I would say that we see this subtly, okay? I, I, don't, I don't believe that I've seen anybody actually blaspheme the Holy Spirit as of yet. I, I may be wrong in that, but, but some subtle ways that I think we see it in our culture that kind of creeps towards this. One is a dismissiveness of creation. So instead of attributing creation to a creator, so some of us can go outside and take these beautiful Instagram photos of a sunset and, and not say a word about where this sunset came from or where the beauty of creation came from. Instead, we want to give credit first to science or we want to give credit to a theory or we want to give credit to some random act alone and not God, not a creator. Or, because we're afraid of the supernatural, because it either makes us look weird, or it makes us seem unintellectual, or, or that we're dependent upon um, something supernatural as a crutch to kind of get us through life, we then attribute what is clearly a supernatural work, whether that's happening in our life or in someone else's life, to mere coincidence, or serendipity, or chance, or even our own right choices. So some of us may say, well, of course, of course those things are happening for me because I've made the right choices. I've gone to the right schools. I've married the right person. My kids are, are behaving in a certain way. And so, of course, these things are going to happen to me. This isn't God's blessing. This isn't the Spirit's work. And I'm telling you, those who continue in this line of thinking will eventually end up exactly where the scribes have found themselves in Mark chapter 3. Blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Finding themselves in the sin that is unforgivable. This is how Paul summarizes it in Romans 1. And I'm I'm certain that, pretty certain that Paul, this is what Paul is getting at. In, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we could use C.S. Lewis's line of thinking here again from his, his uh, book, Mere Christianity, and identifying who Jesus is by eliminating who he is not. So Jesus is either out of his mind, verse 21, or Jesus is either possessed by the devil, as the scribes believe and teach, 
And I just want to make a side note here that even most in our culture, just in their view of Jesus, if you were to walk down the street, doesn't matter who you ask, if you were to ask them who Jesus is, most in our culture would not answer the question, He's at, he was a crazy person or he was possessed by the devil. They wouldn't answer it in that way. They would answer it, he was a good teacher. He was someone that was a good example. They wouldn't answer it in these two ways that we see in the scriptures. So Jesus was either out of his mind, Jesus was either possessed by the devil, or Jesus is exactly who Mark is telling us he is. That he is the last Adam, sent to do what the first Adam could not. That he is the stronger man, sent by God to bind Satan and to set his captives free. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, while we may struggle and doubt at times because of this broken world that we live in, help us always to remember that while now we see through a glass dimly that one day your word says that when we see you face to face, all things will be made clear. So God, I pray that you would just give us a glimpse of that clarity from your word continually. That we would not be caught so caught up in our sin and the brokenness of the world that we are blinded to the truth and reality of what you have done for us and for this world in Christ Jesus. So God, speak to us now, even as we uh, continue in our worship service, that you would continue to proclaim this gospel message to us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.